Hey, this is the Solomon Investor Show, and I am your host, Blake Templeton. This is where we focus on the wealth strategy, the world's wisest man, King Solomon, and translated for you, the 21st century investor, covering everything you need to know for wealth, faith, and excellence. It's time to stop trusting the public markets and look to history's first trillionaire on how to build real, lasting wealth. Look, over the past 14 years, we've applied these exact principles in more than 300 plus transactions. Not one single investor has lost money. That trillionaire was King Solomon. We'll be sharing his wisdom on how to build wealth in a way that's translated for the 21st century investor. My name is Blake Templeton, and this is the Solomon Investor Podcast. In this episode, we'll be discussing the pillar of wealth from the position of educating ourselves on cryptocurrency, understanding what cryptocurrency is, namely Bitcoin, and answer so many questions on Bitcoin itself that everyone's been asking us. And before we jump into that, I want to tell you what a Solomon investor is. I want you to join the Solomon Investor Revolution. This is where you have peace in the middle of chaos, confidence in the middle of a storm of uncertainty. And you have, most importantly, the ability to build wealth sustainably. King Solomon built tall walls, fortresses around his investments. And that's what we do on this podcast. We gain wisdom to build a fortress around the right investments. And then we grow them sustainably. If you like what you're hearing, what I want you to do is take action right now. Hit the like button so that I can keep producing material just like this for you. Then what I want you to do is I want you to hit the red icon and subscribe to this channel. And last, hit the bell icon so you're notified every single time a new video like this comes out. I create this content so that you can be in the kingdom marketplace, create investments that thrive no matter the chaos inside the economy and build wealth sustainably. All right, and today my special guest is Andreas Antonopoulos, author of Mastering Bitcoin, Mastering Ethereum, and the Internet Money Series. By the way, guys, this is amazing, a fascinating read. Uh, we'll talk more about it. But he's one of the most trusted and entertaining educators in the Bitcoin industry. He's a best-selling author, speaker, educator, highly sought out after his expertise in the knowledge of cryptocurrency and his unique ability to make complex subjects easy to understand. His mission is to educate the world about Bitcoin and the open blockchains and reveal the historical, technological, and social economic impacts. Fun fact, he was born in London and raised in Athens, Greece, and here he is. Uh, let's welcome on the show. Andreas, welcome to the show, my friend. Blake, thank you so much for having me on the show. It's a real pleasure. And hey, thanks for that warm introduction, and uh, I, I, I even appreciate you bought my books. Wow, thank you. Yeah, man. Um, I, I appreciate you coming on. I, I'm excited to pick your brain. And I'll just say the Internet Money Series, before we even get into it, uh, it's so good. Uh, oh, you thank know, you. Broken down in like bite-sized chunks of your speeches. And your speeches already were broken down in bite-sized chunks, like, you know, like tangible little sound bites that uh, make sense. And so it's uh, so good. It's, oh, thank you. Thank this you. Is Very a kind season, of you. Yeah, this is a season where we're in uncharted territories. And this is why this podcast mm -hmm. is so important. 
you know, we've got the central banks lying to us. We've got uh, manipulation in the markets. Um, and this is time we, we, we need wisdom. We need wisdom in our investments. And there's so much changing um, the system of money, the currency systems. We have so many different things that are broken. And so we have a new uh, what we might call a life raft. We'll just kind of cut to the chase. We're talking about cryptocurrency, we're talking about Bitcoin. And you have, you've been on the front lines. And one thing I really respect about you, Andreas, is that um, you are preaching the financial literacy of Bitcoin when everyone was throwing rocks at Bitcoin. And, you know, you rode the wave the whole way because you saw beyond it being something to go get like a get rich quick scheme. You saw it beyond something to just go jump into for a fad. You saw it yep. as a new system, a new way. And so, um, yeah, let's just, let's start. Let's start with something very simple. Um, one thing you've said about the blockchain um, is it's the greatest technological innovation since the mobile internet or, you know, even the internet itself. And you had a fun story of obsession when you started learning about Bitcoin. Share more about how you discovered it. So I was uh, definitely primed to discover Bitcoin because I, I'm a computer geek who gets uh, very enthusiastic and easily excited by new technologies. And I've been like that my entire life. I, I got love into that. computers when I was 11 years old. I fell in love with them. I disappeared from the world um, exploring computers. Um, and I've had several moments like that in my life where I, I get involved in a new technology and it becomes a short-term obsession. Um, I ended up studying computer science at university and I was lucky in terms of time and place because um, it was at the birth of the internet. So I studied computer science in 1990 um, and I uh, graduated and went to a program that taught about internet technologies. And at that time I was very interested in cryptography and its applications in uh, various societal institutions, including currency. So I had already been into digital currencies since 1991, 92. Um, That's fascinating. And then I got on with life. I focused on information security um, and developed my career in computers, worked mostly on internet technologies, distributed systems, and information security. Now you can see already, these are some of the elements that went into the recipe that is Bitcoin. But I didn't, I didn't come across it. Then sometime in 2011, I read something about it. And at the time it was related, the article I read at least was discussing it in the context of a gambling site. I was not particularly interested in uh, gambling. Um, as the joke goes, um, uh, gambling is a, is a tax on those who don't understand uh, probability math. And, <laughs> <laughs> and so I, uh, I, I wasn't interested and I dismissed it. I was like, oh yeah, this is some kind of weird private currency related to gambling, not interested. I didn't grasp what it was. Interesting. And, and then about a year later, and this was somewhere around the middle of 2012, um, I read another article. It was about Bitcoin. I was just browsing a, a website for geeks and I read this article and at the end of the uh, little paragraph, the introduction paragraph, I had a link to the Bitcoin white paper, which I clicked and I started reading the Bitcoin white paper and completely derailed my life. Um, wow. there, there was a before I opened that link and then there was after I opened that link and um, it was an experience of reading and with every paragraph going, oh, oh, wow. Oh, oh wow. And just... <laughs> 
it was pushing all of the buttons, right? I understood distributed systems. I understood sure. the problems it was trying to solve. I understood how previous attempts to solve these problems had failed. Mm. I could see an elegance um, in that particular design, in the architecture of the software, and in the way the problem was being approached. I was like, mm. oh, oh, this isn't this isn't about gambling. This isn't even just about money. This is so mm. much bigger. This is an architecture for doing distributed systems and trust across the internet. And I lost myself. I literally just dove in and just started devouring as much information as I could find, reading, writing, and coding, um, trying to understand, and being highly skeptical and working in information security, sure. trying to poke holes into this idea. Like, can I find a way to break it? Um, let me try this. Oh, no, that wouldn't work. And, and just, there must be a catch, right? Which by the way, since then I've discovered a lot of people have that initial reaction, right? There's a catch, Absolutely. right? There's, there, there's gotta yeah. be a catch. Is this a scam? Is this right. some kind of pyramid scheme? So I started reading the code to really understand it. And, and I, for, for four months, I did nothing else nothing else. I literally fired my clients. I was doing freelance consulting at that point. And the next day I went to my clients and said, I'm not going to be working on your projects anymore. I'm afraid something's come up and I won't be able to. Four and, months straight. And for four months straight, all I did wow. was this morning till night. And I stopped, uh, I stopped eating really. Uh, not completely, of course, uh, but I would be so distracted that I'd forget to eat. And then at some point I'd drag myself to the fridge and make a sandwich and I'd be eating while typing and eating while reading. Uh, and I lost 26 pounds, um, which is not healthy. Um, fortunately, I, I had some, you know, extra pounds because I'm in my 40s. <laughs> and um, yeah. And then I came out of this and I said, this, this is what I'm going to be doing. Wow. Um, the previous times I felt this amount of enthusiasm, I had seen a vision of the future that then came to pass. Uh, when I got my first computer, when I got my first access to a modem, when I got my first access to the internet, when I visited the first website, um, each one of these, I was among a tiny number of pioneers who were doing these things for the first time. Um, and no one around me seemed to grasp the, the thing that I was talking about with great mm. enthusiasm. And, and, and in many of these previous events, I was very young. I was a, a teenager or, or even a pre-teenager. And then, um, and I was a young professional without experience, without enough credentials to be taken seriously. This time I was like, okay, I'm no longer gonna be watching from the sidelines. I have conviction, I have confidence. I'm going to put all of my focus into this. Well, okay. That's, that's fascinating. See, and that's what most people haven't done. They haven't put the, the sweat and tears into it to understand it. You have, so what is Bitcoin? So Bitcoin, uh, first of all, the word Bitcoin refers to several different things. Um, but broadly speaking, Bitcoin is a system that's composed of an internet uh, network uh, or protocol that runs on top of the internet that supports a payment system and a currency that is issued and exists only on the internet. The currency is called Bitcoin. The network is called the Bitcoin network. The whole system is called Bitcoin. Sometimes people make the distinction of the system is Bitcoin with a capital B, the currency is Bitcoin with a lowercase b, but that, that's not that important. And 
so it's a, an independent uh, private currency that is not controlled by any corporation or individual or organization. Um, it exists like email or the web as um, essentially a standard or agreement uh, in computer terms, we call that a protocol on how computers can talk to each other. And um, the system itself, uh, the currency as well, emerges from the collaboration of tens of thousands of computers on the internet that all have an equal amount of power in their participation. So no one's actually in charge. There are a set of rules that make up how the system operates and you can participate. And if you do, you agree to work within those rules. And if you try to cheat, you don't get very far. Um, but you also check or your computer checks and verifies that everybody else is following the rules. So nobody trusts anyone, but trust emerges out of the collaboration of everyone. Um, and that's a weird concept to think about. The idea that you could have a global standard for trust um, where people who are not in direct contact can establish trust in a, in a common set of rules. And that's cool. what's magical about it. And, and that's a, it's a weird concept because it's, it's a foreign concept because we just don't have that anymore, right? It's, it's, yes. it's not existent in our current uh, centralized system. So why is that so important? Why is it a decentralized system? Why is that so important? So in my opinion, one of the reasons why a decentralized system is so important is, uh, well, there's, there's two primary reasons. The first reason is that... Um, Society is governed by institutions that have uh, a hierarchical structure, um, an architecture that, that looks like a mountain or, or a pyramid, right? So you have um, managers and managers of managers, et cetera, up to some kind of leadership organization. And whether you look at how governments works or how a corporation works or how even a housing association or a school works, someone's in charge or some group of people are in charge and there are a set of rules and the organization works that way. The problem is that that shape doesn't scale, um, meaning that the bigger it gets, the further away the leadership is from uh, the people who have to abide by these rules and information flowing up gets uh, so diluted that you can't make good decisions at the top. And then um, also, in my opinion, there's uh, an element of it bringing out some of the worst in human nature, meaning that the higher up people are on the pyramid, they get more power. Uh, that power has a corrupting right. influence. Um, they get more money. They can use that power to not only elevate themselves, but also to keep other people from um, succeeding. And, um, and, and that can corrupt uh, the behavior of people. So to me, that's a broken system. It's, it's not about, can we find good people to rise to the top of this? Because it, it, you can't do that. Good people in a system like that can end up doing things that are bad for everyone uh, just because the system itself uh, creates those conditions. Uh, so from, from my perspective, that's one of the problems. These systems worked really well to bring our society to a scale of seven and a half billion people on this planet and, and achieve you know, incredible things as a human civilization, but, uh, but it doesn't scale. 
And the bigger a country gets, the more the population gets, the more we have to deal with problems that are greater than those that can be handled by a single country, the pandemic being a great example, the harder it is to get coordination. One of the areas where it's really hard is in trade and commerce when it comes to currency. And so one of the things that we've inadvertently achieved is a world in which currencies live in these little islands that are separated and controlled by governments and trade between countries becomes very difficult. And in the process, we've left behind almost six and a half billion people. Um, and to me, that's unacceptable. That's, and you mean six and a half billion because they're not banks. They don't have a bank account, the system of banking. Well, they're either unbanked, which is a smaller percentage. Uh, unbanked is usually about two and a half to three billion. Um, or they're severely underbanked, meaning that they don't have access to international investment. They don't have access to international commerce. They don't have access to other currencies. So if you think about how many people on this planet have a stable democratic uh, government and a stable um, and valuable currency, that's about 13% of humanity. And 87% has either an unstable and sometimes totalitarian government or an unstable currency and banking system that can't be trusted or both. So that's six and a half billion people. And we, we have, you know, certain incredible advantages. Uh, you know, if you're an American, you don't necessarily always see that. Uh, sure. It's something that happens elsewhere. I, I grew up in Greece. I got to see it a couple of times. Uh, currency inflation, runs on the banks, bank collapses, long lines to get to the bank to withdraw money, um, governments confiscating pensions, things like that. Now, to an American, that's a that's an alien experience. It's not something that happens often. At least in the last it, like 30 years or so. I mean, which we America has experienced this, right? It has. And I think probably the, the best recent example is it goes a bit further back probably to the Great Depression uh, right. in, in the 20s. Um, but nevertheless, it's, it's, it's not a recent experience. Well, the rest of the world, it's a, not, it's a very recent experience. It's a great uh, point. And so to me, one of the imperatives for Bitcoin is if we remove the ability of um, people to interfere, to try to skew the system in their favor, to tip the balance in their favor. And we create a set of rules that are transparent. And, and most importantly, we create a system of currency that is open to everyone without borders and that is completely neutral, that anyone can participate in without ID, without any kind of limit, simply by downloading software. We go back to a time um, when currency was just this neutral thing that was universally recognized. We had that with precious metal money. You know, when, if you had a gold coin and you, know, you were a Sumerian, a Phoenician, uh, a Greek, uh, a Roman, or a, a, a Saxon, it didn't matter. It was all gold coin. It didn't matter who minted it. it didn't matter whose face was on it. Um, and everyone could figure out if it was real and it was universal. That is a much more scalable system for the world we live in today. So it's a matter of fairness. Uh, it's also a matter of efficiency. Um, and uh, I think we can do it. That's really good. So let's tie some of those points together. So we talked about um, our current system, and we'll talk about the 
U.S. for a second. Our current system, it's not scalable. It's a debt economy. So we're built on debt. Um, you talked about how there's a, it's a, a pyramid where there's a bunch of people at the top, may call them the central bank or the Fed, um, maybe some Congress. And uh, there's people at the top who are making a too large of an important of a decision for everyone else. And they might, because of the actual system itself, where they can just print money and dilute the US dollar and devalue the currency or debase the currency, because how the system is set up, um, they might not have very many other options to actually work with because of how the system's set up. But that centralized system is the problem. So we talked about the decentralized, which is what you're saying Bitcoin is. And you talked about it being without borders, which we don't have anything without borders. Everything has its own little well, we borders. We do. We have the internet. Yes. I'm sorry. As far as, as, far as a direct currency outside of Bitcoin. Yes. Like uh, each currency you mentioned is kind of like the little, little islands and they mm -hmm. kind of have a little mafia where they control their little islands. And they're trying to make one island stronger than the other. Um, but that right. actually, that makes six and a half billion people um, completely set apart from um, being able to scale as an economy. And, and if we're quite frank, the, the U.S., which I, I'm guessing you're talking about, is a big portion of that current um, population, isn't doing so hot either. So the whole right. entire system is, is not well um, I love that. Tell us. So let's talk about. We talked about the dilution of the dollar a little bit. Um, when the U.S. and, for that matter, every other currency now, it's kind of a race to print as much as you can, right? To 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 save your current bacon. Right. Um, but they're printing the money, and that's mm -hmm. diluting the dollar. So we have a. It's not scarce. They can. It's plentiful. Um, you know, Jerome Powell has actually said, and multiple other um, Fed bank presidents have said you know, we can lay the hammer down. We can print as much as we need to, to keep this thing going. Like we, we can do it. Um, so they're very clear. They want to dilute. Um, mm -hmm. What, how is Bitcoin so different? What makes Bitcoin so different? Well, one aspect of it that is very different is one of the rules that um, is enforced by everyone who participates in the system that is written in the software is that um, the issuance of Bitcoin is um, predicted, it's baked in from the beginning, and it's limited, meaning that there will never be 21 million Bitcoin. There will always be just less than 21 million. Um, and the way this is done um, and, and this is, a, in fact, a common misunderstanding and a very strange thing to understand is we don't just continue producing Bitcoin and then when we reach 21 million, we go stop. Because obviously you can't do that. If you tried to do that, then when you got to 21 million and some people said stop, some other people would say no, keep going. Sure. Uh, interestingly enough, the mechanism it works is, is much, much smarter um, in, and that is that the issuance is reduced from day one every four years. It's reduced by half. Um, and what that's like, to give you a, a simple analogy, let's say you want to travel with your car 21 miles and you arrive at the starting point going 50 miles an hour. And after um, four yards or some uh, distance, um, you press the brakes and you cut it down to 25 miles an hour. Now you're going 25 miles an hour. Um, and then you press, you keep pressing the brake. And then after a certain distance, you go down to 12 and a half miles an hour and you keep going less and less and less and less and less speed. Now, when you get to the 21 miles, 
your speed is so slow that you're actually going uh, to give you a, a, a great, a, a, an analogous number, you're going, uh, let's say, <clears throat> 164th of an inch a month, right? Very you're moving, but, but you're moving so slowly because you started pushing on the brake 21 yeah. miles back. Right. Now, th that's if you, at that moment you said, no, we need to keep going. It was like, sure, but you're not going to go very far. <laughs> Right. That's a very great. If you wanted analogy. to change the issuance. You needed to take your foot off the brake way back there. Now we're already down to six and a quarter uh, Bitcoin per block uh, from fifty, which we started in two thousand nine. Explain what that means. That means every block issued fifty Bitcoin in two thousand nine. Then in 2012, it became 25. Then in 2016, it became 12 and a half. Then in uh, 2020, in July of last year, it went down to six and a quarter. And in 2024, it's going to go down to three and an eighth. And I can guarantee you that's what's going to happen because right now, all of the people who have Bitcoin want it to be scarce. And it would take overwhelming agreement. 98% would have to agree to take their foot off the brake now because in 2140, when we stop issuing Bitcoin, when the algorithm stops issuing Bitcoin, it's already too late. To that point, even if you did take your foot off the brake, nothing would change. It's so fascinating. Okay, so to say that in another way, what I hear you saying is um, before the system was created, it was set up that there was only going to be 21 million Bitcoin. Whereas with the US dollar, um, they could change the rules at any given time, which they did like in 1971, when we were mm -hmm. taken off the gold standard and they said, hey, put the pedal to the metal. Let's just continue to print because we need to, to keep our economy alive. Right. So they set up a rule ahead of time, which can't be changed. And um, the algorithm keeps getting uh, this is what I'm hearing you say, correct me if I'm wrong, keeps getting more complicated and more complicated as the Bitcoins are produced. And no, so it's not more complicated. The complexity and the difficulty of the mining is, is um, fixed. There's simply a rule that everybody agrees and enforces on every block that says, here's how much should be in this block. Okay. And every every 210,000 blocks, which is approximately every four years, the very next block is expected by everyone to have half as much as the previous block. And if a miner simply produced a block with without changing the amount, everybody would look at that block and go, no, that's invalid. This was supposed to have three and an eighth. It says very and interesting and chucks it that's and because so everybody rejects it. The miner just did all the work for nothing. Um, and, and they get punished because they've, they've already expended the energy it takes to, to, to produce that. So the peer-to-peer -peer accountability, even in the uh, creation of it, is, is a trust system we've just, we just don't know anything about anymore. It's so yes, it's, it's a continuous auditing system. Every 10 minutes as one block comes out, everybody checks the validity of every transaction and every block or bucket of transactions that is issued every 10 minutes. Everyone who participates, uh, my laptop is doing it right now. Um, and so that ensures that no one can sneak something in. And that process of continuous audit means that no one can change the rules or uh, make a change that the rest of us don't agree with. I, I decide which rules I'm gonna run on my computer. I decide which software I'm gonna run. So I've decided I'm gonna run the rules of Bitcoin 
And that means I won't accept a block with more than six and a quarter Bitcoin right now. That's good. Um, and I, I love your cup, your, your coffee cup, rulers or rules without rulers. That uh, ties so beautifully into what we're talking about being decentralized, a scarce uh, currency where you can't print more of it. It's actually, which means the value can't be diluted. It's a real truth value. Uh, so good. Um, yeah. Andre? There's this common misconception to explain this slogan a tiny bit. It's this idea that unless you have an authority that is in charge of how things are going to work, a single central authority, um, the alternative is chaos. So the opposite of authority is chaos, anarchy. Um, but anarchy isn't chaos. Um, the opposite of authority is autonomy. And, and what we have here is a system which not only has rules, it has very, very strict and specific rules that everybody knows what these rules are that are encoded in the software and that they get checked very carefully by everyone who's participating. So we have more rules in Bitcoin than you can imagine. I can tell you what the interest rate, issuance rate and monetary policy of Bitcoin will be in a hundred years from today to the eighth decimal point because it's already written in the software and I know it's not going to change. Um, that degree of certainty has never existed in the digital or physical domain. So Absolutely. we have lots of rules. What we don't have in Bitcoin is rulers who can change the rules at whim. Uh, and that's a really important change. It's a system of trust that is very clear. People sometimes say Bitcoin isn't regulated. No, no. Bitcoin is regulated by math. It's more regulated than any other system we have. It's That's a really more regulated good than the US dollar. Like, tell me what the interest rate is going to be next Friday. No, <laughs> right. no. The Federal Reserve could meet today and say, we're changing it. And, and you'll just find out. You'll be told like everybody else. And you'll you just don't be have told. An, and you don't have a choice to say, no, that's not, <laughs> sorry. The, the rules say this is how many dollars should exist and you just violated it. So I'm not going to accept your latest batch of dollars, but I can do that with Bitcoin. I That's do so do that. Yeah. It's really important because as a Solomon investor, we've got to understand that what's really hurt our investments is the dilution of the dollar. I mean, yeah. no matter where you're invested, if you're in the U S currency, that's the problem is, you know, we've lost 90% of the currency over the last hundred years so the power of Bob's $100,000 is 90% less powerful than it was 100 years ago. So, um, yeah, really, really good point. Uh, um, good point. Uh, let's talk utilization. So um, a lot of people say, you know, it's, it's nothing. It's abstract. You can't, I, I don't get it. You can't use it. Um, let's talk about what's changed. How, what's the ability to use it? What's its utilization right now? So it, it depends on where you are and who you are. So um, certainly if you, if you look at somewhere like the United States or North America, Western Europe, places that are relatively wealthy and stable, the primary use case for Bitcoin is as an investment hedge, specifically an inflation hedge or an alternative uh, somewhat non-correlated or counter-correlated investment um, for inflation hedging. Um, and in, in the kind of chase for yield that investors are attempting to do now because everything else has become correlated, it's, it offers something that you can do to a portfolio. 
in that role, it, it can be very risky. But of course, to an investor, risk is simply one of the metrics that you plug into the spreadsheet and you allocate in a diversified portfolio. If something is risky, you don't say, I'll never touch it. You just say, well, how much of it can I use? Uh, the simple analogy I use for those who are not sophisticated investors is think of it as you're making a gumbo and um, you've got a very important ingredient is going to be your cayenne pepper. Now, a pinch and that will liven it up. It will make it interesting. You dump the entire pot of cayenne into your gumbo. It's inedible. So the same way when you're looking at a risky, high yield, high volatility investment, it's the cayenne that you sprinkle on your portfolio. A lot of traditional investors are doing that. Some are doing it much more risky than that. That's only part of the picture. There's a lot of places in the world and a lot of use cases that have to do with a broken international system of payments. So import-export businesses, businesses that rely on a broad network of international partners, suppliers, contractors, where they have to deal with wire transfers and invoices and trying to pay subcontractors by PayPal and things like that. Um, for those kinds of uses, it's absolutely brilliant. Uh, I use it to pay contractors all around the world. They get paid in 10 minutes. Um, they, they can then convert that or, or to their local currency, or in many cases, just hold on to it. Um, if they convert it to their local currency, ironically, the worse their government is doing with their local currency, the more of a premium they get, especially if their government is trying to ban Bitcoin, then it's really valuable. Um, and of course, no one can stop me from paying them or stop them from receiving it. So it gets around all of these um, kind of problematic government regulations where all you're trying to do is uh, build a website or translate something into Spanish or whatever. And I can work with international contractors. If you run an import-export business, obviously, this is a game changer. Um, of course, it's also used for a variety of less savory, um, uh, less legal uh, types of activities too, just like any other form of currency. But we have to understand that what is legal and what is not legal varies greatly by jurisdiction. I'll give you an example. One of the reasons it's used is to provide funding to um, movements that are fighting against dictators in places like Belarus or Ukraine or Venezuela or various places like that. Um, now, in Belarus, the Belarusian dictator has decided that uh, this should not happen. No surprises there. Um, the people of Belarus are very happy to get the ability to get funded to the tune of millions of dollars in order to fight a brutal dictatorship. Same thing happened briefly in Hong Kong. Um, you know, so there's all of these kinds of other geopolitical applications that have to do with empowering individuals uh, so that they can. Um, use their wealth, which maybe they developed through their hard labor, um, to express their political opinion, to, to associate, to, to, to develop their freedom of speech. So that's an important aspect to me too. Yeah, that's really good. And um, over the last, what, like six months, we've got Square and PayPal have opened it up where you can buy and sell through their systems. And you can now obviously buy food at the restaurant with a um, you know custom Visa or Mastercard connection, mm -hmm. where you're holding your Bitcoin there, you slide into the Square you know clerk's 
machine at the restaurants and then it it with a high rail system changes the Bitcoin into the US currency immediately. And so there's so many practical uses, whereas, you know, even a year ago, um, it didn't have legs yet. It didn't have the ability to do as much as it can now. Um, so um, let's talk about security. Uh, on As far as security, um, what, why is it important and what do you like about the security of Bitcoin? So the security model of Bitcoin is very different and at first will appear quite alien um, to those who are used to security being handled by a custodian. So when you put your money in the bank, you don't worry about whether the bank gets robbed or um, whether the bank is going to go bankrupt. In the US, you don't. In many other countries, of course, in the world, you very much do worry because uh, between the bankers, the embezzlers, the robbers, and the government, everyone's trying to dip their um, grubby little fingers into your bank account and take a cut. Um, so th again, it's, it's one of those cases where the experience is very different from country to country. Uh, from a security perspective, if here you're used to trusting bankers, um, Bitcoin will seem strange. Uh, because in order to get the full power of Bitcoin in a decentralized system, what you do is you decentralize control of the money. You don't put it all in the hands of a custodian. That's dangerous. Instead, you take control. Um, we use little USB security devices called hardware wallets to control the um, private keys, which are like a pin number that allows us to use Bitcoin with absolute autonomy where we control it, nobody else controls it, no one can seize it, freeze it, confiscate it, or anything like that. If you do that right, you have a very high degree of security. I never worry if uh, my bank is going to go bankrupt, if, uh, if uh, someone's gonna embezzle the money, or uh, if the FDI system, FDIC system will actually work in a systemic right. crisis and not just an individual bank closure, which is very doubtful. Um, and um, I'm also not worried about whether I can or cannot send a wire transfer um, with my Bitcoin, the equivalent of a wire transfer to make a payment somewhere. Nobody's going to call me up and say, well, no, actually, you can't do that. Um, so from a security perspective, you have to think differently with the, the power and control that comes with that, also a lot of responsibility, right? Um, now, many people are not ready for that. They're probably going to use third-party custodians. Um, but gradually, as you progress in your journey with Bitcoin, you learn more and more skills until it becomes second nature and you manage it yourself. There's a whole new generation that is currently growing up, the, uh, is growing up in a world that always had Bitcoin. And... If uh, in 20 years you ask them, well, why would you make money on the internet? They'll be like, well, how else are we going to do it? What you mean? We're just going to have, uh, you know, 12 dudes on a committee somewhere tell us how money works, and right. uh, we'll, we'll put it in a in a bank that still uses fax machines. <laughs> right. Seriously. Um, so there is a bit of a generational gap there, and and trust me, I know I'm I'm 50. I'm part of probably in the in the age range of of the investors you work with, um, and that's a difficult transition. Just like it was a difficult transition for many older people to adapt to the internet, but again, it's it's not difficult uh, for those who are willing to take the extra technical steps, and there's a, a significant benefit here. Um, these technologies, like the internet before them, 
deliver a premium, a value premium. Um, and that value premium is related to the difficulty of adoption. Meaning that if you have to climb the mountain to get to the top, not many people will do that. And when you get to the top, you get a discount on <laughs> the Bitcoin you find there because um, when everyone can get it, then obviously it's going to be uh, a different value proposition. The same thing with, with the internet, right? So I think that's important to, to remember when people say, well, um, how is it that Bitcoin was once only, you know, $100? Uh, it was because it was $100 plus a master's degree in computer science to get. Um, now you don't need the master's degree in computer science, so it's a bit more on the monetary side. Yeah, that's, <clears throat> you made some really interesting points. Um, one, going back to the banking, the banks, I remember in the Great Depression, uh, a story my great-grandmother told me, um, my great grandfather had just got ten thousand dollars back then and put it in the bank, and um, out of nowhere, the banks froze their accounts. Mm -hmm. And then three days later, the bank filed bankruptcy and the money was gone. Mm -hmm. And it was just that wake-up call of like they didn't actually own the money; the bank actually owned the money because it was in their hands. And so, uh, I love the security aspect you're talking about because that's one thing that um, we're, as a people, um, I'm talking to those in the U.S. right now, as a people, we're very forgetful of our history. And we're so forgetful even that, you know, we invest into a mutual fund that's a bathtub of, you know, correlated stocks. And then we, we lose 20%. And then 10 years later, we forget and we go do it again. You know, we just forget. Well, same thing in the banking world. You made some really great you know, points about security is um, FDIC. Like, what is FDIC? It doesn't even make any sense. Like, they're printing money, so they're securing well, no, no, your I money. Mean, it's important to understand exactly what FDIC is. First of all, it's a banking consortium. It's not a federal gov government organization. Right. It's an organization made by the banks themselves. And it has a very specific purpose. It is a backstop for individual specific banks failing um, so that it can um, protect that like a break from the rest of the system, right? So it can protect from systemic risks to the system itself. Um, it's basically to protect the banking system from some of the banks failing in a way that creates a panic. Um, now, if you think that that means that it's there to protect depositors from right. systemic risk, then you have misunderstood the purpose of this system because that's right. not what it does. And it's not um, capitalized enough to do that. And every year, the FDIC bails out you know, 10, 15, 20 smaller local banks. But when it was created after the Great Depression versus now, now due to consolidation and merger, the, the, the biggest six or seven banks can control 80, 90% of the entire banking system. And their liabilities are in the tens of trillions of dollars. They cannot be bailed out, not by the FDIC and not even by the government. Um, yeah, it's a great point. And, and, and so the problem is that um, a systemic default by the banks is not bailed out by FDIC. The same thing that happened in 2008. Now, if you want to find out how that works, look at what happened in Cyprus in 2013. In 2013, 
the banks in Cyprus were insolvent and they had depositor insurance. And despite that, they did a bail-in where basically what they did was they took a haircut, uh, took 20% of deposits um, from depositors. And that meant that a lot of pensioners who had put their money in cash in the bank lost a percentage of their pension. Now, when, when grandma loses 20% of her pension, she doesn't have the option to live 20% less. I mean, that's, that's not how point. we should look at it, right? right? What do you do if you're 85 and 20% of your pension that you were hoping was going to last you 10 years um, goes away? What, what you do is you expose yourself to enormous hardship. And this is exactly right. what happened um, in Cyprus. Cyprus, a European, uh, modern, uh, well-capitalized, robust economy um, in the European Union with a robust and well-developed banking sector. This is not stuff that's happening only in third world countries. So um, if you believe in FDIC, um, FDIC is the Santa Claus of the banking system. It's okay to believe in it until you're about eight years old. After that, you should probably watch, uh, you know, and learn something about how it actually works. Hey guys, I'm glad you joined me on part one. Go now to part two because we dive deeper into store of value, medium exchange. How do you actually use it? How do you spend Bitcoin? And we get into deeper pictures of how that can be used for your investments. Also, if you have any desire to actually invest into Bitcoin, we're going to do a presentation shortly where you can actually invest with us. We actually have a brand new hedge fund coming out where you can not only invest with us, but we actually control everything for you as your Solomon general. You're going to love it. So do me a favor, pull out your cell phone and text the word Solomon to 31996. Again, text Solomon to 31996. That's going to send me a text message where then we'll work directly with you to get our webinar to you so that you are right in the middle of the education when that hedge fund comes out. You're going to love it. When we invest together as a Solomon investor, this is where we create sustainable wealth and are a steward for the kingdom of God. Bless you guys. All right, guys, here comes the thanks and the shout outs. We want to thank everyone that leaves reviews and the written reviews on Apple, Spotify, and all the other platforms. Just know they mean the world to us. If you've taken the 30 to 60 seconds, you know, extra seconds to show love and to give context of why this has been worthwhile for you and why this podcast has helped you, we thank you. We're going to give a couple shout outs of our favorite reviews each podcast. So please give us some love with a five-star review and thank you for joining the Solomon Investor Revolution.